We live in a time when science and truth are relative. Facts are borrowed and exploited to feed the needs of the borrower. The relentless pursuit of power has led to the misuse and deliberate misinterpretation of science. The very information that is supposed to offer the world solutions, to offer the world truth, becomes a weapon of power. Only so many secrets and stories of misinformation can build up before the dam breaks and the flood is released. Before these pivotal moments, science sent out a warning flare. The Flint River was never safe. The walls keeping millions of tons of coal slurry at bay in Kentucky were never structurally sound. But in the pursuit of power, these facts were ignored as everyone tried to make science what they needed it to be. In this episode, we share the stories of Flint and Martin County, Kentucky as one. Their story shows what happens when science is ignored, mishandled, and manipulated, and the force that courage has in challenging the abuse of power. I'm Desiree Blutenthal. And I'm Grace Gibson, and this is Poison and Power, the Fight for Water, a Moral Courage Project, a partnership of the University of Dayton Human Rights Center and Proof media for social justice. Episode 2, Toxic Truth. Our story begins under an Appalachian night sky in the year 2000. In the valleys between the mountain's proud peaks, with crisp fall air sweeping through the forests, many residents of Martin County, Kentucky lay asleep. But the cracks in the concrete barrier of a nearby coal impoundment are wide awake as they crumble under the weight of millions of gallons of coal processing waste. They break free from their holding place in an event that becomes known as the Martin County Slurry Spill. Jack Spinero, mine safety engineer, was part of a team that investigated the spill. At the time, he worked as the director of the National Mine Health and Safety Academy, which falls under the umbrella of the U.S. Department of Labor's Mine Safety and Health Administration. In October 2000, there was another uh, massive coal waste dam failure in eastern Kentucky, and that was in Martin County, Kentucky. Uh, and it, it was a situation where the dam, uh, the reservoir, sat over top of abandoned underground mine workings. And uh, although the company said there was like 100 feet of barrier between the bottom of the reservoir and those old mine workings, there was really only about 18 feet. So it finally broke through and released uh, 300 million gallons of coal slurry uh, into the mine. That mine then drained into uh, the Big Sandy, the Tug Fork, the Big Sandy, and the Ohio Rivers and killed everything downstream for 100 miles, everything in the stream and along the, the riverbanks. It was, uh, it was the largest uh, environmental disaster in the United States involving water until the uh, BP spill in the Gulf of Mexico. It was like, I don't know, 10 times bigger than the Exxon Valdez spill. Actually, the spill wasn't 10 times bigger than the Exxon Valdez spill. It was about 25 times bigger. The coal slurry came from what Jack briefly described as a reservoir. These are also referred to as coal impoundments, or simply, ponds. The ponds store the waste product, or coal slurry, that results from mountaintop removal and coal processing. 
We talked to Dr. Gail Bryant, biologist working at the University of Kentucky, who was asked to investigate drinking water quality after the spill. Dr. Bryan gave us the recipe for the toxic cocktail known as coal slurry and the problems that develop soon after its release into the environment. This waste coal product had arsenic and mercury and very, very high levels of aluminum. And they made a movie out of it called Sludge. And the people in the town were experiencing rashes and their water, they didn't trust their water anymore. Um, they thought people were lying to them. They were probably right. And they didn't know what was going on with them. Jack Spadaro recalled to us what the story looked like. What, what, what was so uh, disturbing to me was realizing that as we were, you know, requiring the company to clean up the stream beds, the, the material that was had been released was so viscous, it was thick, it was uh, it was just it was a very uh, concentrated uh, collection of uh, of toxic uh, uh, heavy metals that were now lining not only the stream bed that had filled the stream completely and, as I said, killed everything downstream. Close to 2 million fish was an estimate. It wiped out 15 uh, water supplies. Uh, but, again, it was the smell of this. Uh, this Again, there was a, in this instance, there was, again, the coal smell, the sulfur smell, the uh, the smell of mud and and debris, uh, uh, and seeing people's yards filled. Some people's yards were filled all the way up to their front door with this black viscous material, and nothing was ever going to be the same. Martin County sources its drinking water out of these polluted rivers. Once the slurry coursed through the rivers and into the surrounding land, every bit of soil it touched and land it covered mingled with the chemicals contained in the slurry. To make matters worse, Martin County's water infrastructure system is riddled with leaky pipes, cracked and mangled from years of neglect. When leaky pipes run underneath and through contaminated soil, the groundwater leaches into the pipes, which carry the chemicals straight to the taps of residents. So it is no wonder that residents experience rashes and other unexplainable ailments, as Dr. Bryan alluded to. The news of the rashes and ailments experienced by the residents may remind you of the Flint water crisis and some of the symptoms we heard about in Episode 1 from Flint residents. Sarah Tallman is a lawyer with the Natural Resource Defense Council, or NRDC, an environmental legal advocacy organization. She told us about the events leading up to the crisis. 2014, based on some, well, let's go back a little bit earlier than that, right? 2011, the city was in financial distress and the governor declared um, something called a financial emergency. And Michigan has a particular law that essentially allows the governor to withdraw authority from local elected officials and install a state appointed emergency manager. 
Um, so that's what happened in Flint. So the governor appointed an emergency manager to kind of take control over the city and its finances, and it stripped all power from the mayor and um, the city council. So the mayor essentially had no power to do anything. City council has no power to enact ordinances or make any decisions. It's all kind of the state appointed um, emergency manager. While the emergency manager was controlling the city, some decisions were made to switch the source of the city's water. For I think over 50 years, Flint had been getting its water from the city of Detroit, which came from Lake Huron and was kind of pre-treated in Detroit's water treatment plant. Um, they kind of stopped the contract with Detroit and decided to get water for at least an interim amount of time from the Flint River. The city of Flint had not treated its own water for over 50 years. Its treatment plant hadn't kind of conducted all the kinds of um, you know, chemical treatments to maintain its safety, to chlorinate the water, um, so in addition to lead, but to do all the other things that you have to do to water to make it safe. Um, the city of Flint really wasn't ready to do that in 2014 when they made the switch. Nonetheless, they switched the water source. This was April 2014. Um, citizens immediately started noticing a change in their water quality. Their water was discolored, it smelled bad, they could see sediments in it, they were experiencing rashes and hair loss, and you know they started raising concerns about it even at that early time. Just as Dr. Bryan described the health impacts in Appalachia, the skin of Flint residents also became spotted with rashes. The issue in their water was not arsenic or mercury, but lead. Lead is um, a metal and it is very dangerous to humans. As you probably know, it's devastating to almost every organ system in the body and particularly nervous system, the nervous system and brain, the brain. And that's why it's particularly harmful to infants um, and children whose brains are still developing. Um, and scientists have kept looking for a smaller and smaller amount of lead below which they can say, well, if you're only exposed to this tiny amount, it's fine. And every time they try to find a smaller amount, they still find effects. And so the reality is there is no safe level of exposure to lead and there is no safe level of lead in blood. Um, notwithstanding that, many of our water pipes um, historically throughout this country are made of lead. Um, lead is a was a particularly useful metal to use for water pipes. And so historically, many of our pipes were made of lead. Okay, how does lead get into water? In general, lead does not occur in the source water. So I live in Chicago, my water comes from Lake Michigan. As a general proposition, there isn't that much lead naturally occurring in, in Lake Michigan. Instead, what happens is as water travels from, so for me, Lake Michigan, there's a treatment plant and then it goes through miles of piping into my house. The lead gets into the water as it travels through the pipes and as it travels through a lead pipe or a pipe that might have lead fixtures or um, the pieces that connect two pipes together, the lead can break off, flake off, or dissolve into the water and that's how it gets ultimately into our taps. Um, water in general corrodes metal, um, so there's just a naturally occurring process as water is passing through the pipes it's corroding the pipes and the lead then leaches into the water. So in general, how do you prevent that from happening? Well, you have to treat the water with chemicals to prevent corrosion. Um, and so if you add those chemicals repeatedly, a protective scale builds up over time to help reduce and prevent leaching. Um, ultimately, the way to get those levels down to zero is of course to remove the source of lead in the first instance, which is to take out the lead pipes. 
Um, so the safest alternative is to have a water system with no lead as part of the infrastructure. So how do we protect communities from having lead contamination in their water system? As I mentioned, there's a federal law called the Safe Drinking Water Act, which is supposed to protect our water from all kinds of contaminants. Um, and the Federal Environmental Protection Agency is an agency of the federal government who is responsible for implementing that law. And they have issued a series of regulations specifically targeting lead. And those regulations are generally known as the lead and copper rule. So there are many pieces of that lead and copper rule, but there are two that I wanna mention briefly that are I think most critical to what happened in Flint um, and what really went wrong in Flint. So the regulations, first of all, they require for large water systems, which include a city like Flint, um, they require something called corrosion control treatment. So they require systems to treat the water to minimize the amount of lead um, contamination in the water. So they require systems to figure out what is the optimal way to treat this water and to implement that optimal system. Um, and so exactly what combination of chemicals that might be depends on the water chemistry of the system. And so the system is supposed to do certain things, conduct a study to figure out what is the right mix of chemicals, what is the right pH level for this water system to maximally reduce the amount of lead. And then once they figure out what that optimal treatment system is, we call it optimal corrosion control treatment, they have to implement that treatment and keep implementing it. So that's the kind of treatment mandate. So that's very important, a requirement to treat the water to minimize lead levels. The second requirement is that water systems are supposed to monitor the tap water. They're supposed to test it to see if they can detect a problem. All of these events could have been prevented. Their causes were identifiable and their harms were predictable. And in Kentucky, this spill was not the first of its kind. Another major spill occurred in 1972 at Buffalo Creek. In this spill, a mine waste dam holding back 125 million gallons of wastewater failed. When it broke, it was a wave that was 25, 30 feet high. It wiped out 17 communities, uh, killed 125 people, and left 4,000 people homeless. We asked Jack what memory stuck with him from the Buffalo Creek spill. It's still very hard. After all this time, So I'll give it a try. When I first drove into the Buffalo Creek Valley, everything was gray, black. Uh, the bodies of children were being pulled from the mud, uh, and the smell was of uh, something um, old and and rotting, uh, it was like nothing I had ever experienced before. You know, and I'd been around mine disasters where there's the smell of a kind of sulfur smell or something like that, but I, this was on a, such a massive scale. No matter how many warnings were sent out, nobody in the position to actually prevent the crises acknowledged them. Instead, they took the easy way out, pursuing their power while the citizens carried the weight of their actions on their shoulders. The science was ignored, and the knowledge warning of the consequences was silenced. In Martin County, 
Jack Spadaro told us of the safer option that was available to Massey Energy, the corporation operating the impoundment. There were alternative methods to disposing of this mine waste that would not have involved building uh, reservoirs. But it was a little more expensive, and the company would have made uh, $1 a ton less profit. They had actually installed the devices that could have kept it uh, from being uh, a wastewater problem uh, and made it just a solid waste problem. But they had had uh, disconnected that process from the plant and started pumping this slurry simply because it was cheaper and it allowed them to make more money. Um, and that's the case in almost all the water situations that I've been involved in. Somebody decides to do something that will allow them to make more profit. Jack was positioned to do something about it. As a government official with knowledge of the spill and a sense of who was responsible, you would think and maybe hope that some justice would come from his investigation. But, actually, no. A month after the spill, the infamous Bush-Gore election of 2000 took place, and when the dust settled, the investigation came to an end. And on the day that Bush was inaugurated, I am not lying, on that day, we were told to end our investigation. And, of course, you later read how I found out that uh, Mitch McConnell had received money from that company as a contribution to the Republican Senatorial Committee and the fix was in to cover up on behalf of Massey Energy. And when I found that out on that day, on January 20th, I said, well, I'm not going to sign any report that comes out because we're not done. We're not finished with our investigation. And I just kept that promise that I'd made, you know, all those years before that I would never participate in something <laughs> that would affect uh, public health and safety uh, in a negative way. And then I found out that the Bush administration was trying to cover up the actual causes of that failure and the responsibility of not only the mining company, but the government in allowing those conditions to develop. So I went into a big fight with the Bush administration <laughs> and uh, on the record said that the Bush administration was one of the most corrupt administrations, certainly in my lifetime, when it came to uh, water pollution and, and uh, mine health and safety. And I had 30 years in the federal government, and I was essentially forced out in Flint. Anyone who had been around for some time would know that the Flint River was more a river of pollution than a river of water. The history of pollution started in the 1800s when the river became a dumping site for industrial waste from paper processing and lumber mills and later the waste from automobile factories. The river had been the source of drinking water until 1867. When Flint switched to the Detroit water system, which they will remain on until the water crisis. But the pollution to Flint River continued. Another major source was the heavy use of agricultural 
fertilizers upstream and the discharging of raw sewage from Flint's wastewater plant. In the 1930s, the river's fish population disappeared as pollutants lowered the oxygen levels in the river, suffocating the fish. In 1999, a year before the Martin County slurry spill, the Flint River had its spill of its own. 22 million gallons of sewage dumped into the river after a pipe was slashed accidentally during some contracting work. For over a year, officials prohibited any direct contact with the river. We could go on describing additional sources of pollution, but you get the idea. The Flint River is no fountain of youth. To make matters worse, when Flint switched to its water source in 2014, the city failed to treat the water in order to make it drinkable, as required by law, as Sarah Tomlin with the NRDC explains. When they switched the water source, they stopped adding any kinds of corrosion-inhibiting chemicals to the water. So they stopped the chemical corrosion treatment, which is required under the laws we talked about. So they were not following the treatment mandate. They also were not following the monitoring mandate. So the NRDC got on board. They began by filing a petition looking for the least invasive ways to get the government involved quickly to regulate the situation. We first actually tried to, um, we filed an emergency petition with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. This was October um, 2015 to urge them to take immediate action, um, which they have authority and power to do under the Safe Drinking Water Act. And we said there's an imminent and substantial endangerment to human health going on in Flint, and you should use your federal authority to act immediately. Here our stories converge again. Residents in both places, in Michigan and Kentucky, are drinking dirty water. They are experiencing rashes, bacterial outbreaks, illnesses, and more. Meanwhile, government leaders and individuals perpetuating the crisis retreat to safety. They could go home to their residencies outside the reach of poisoned water. They could brush their teeth before sleeping without the worry of what they ingested in the process. But as the decision makers went to bed, the people of Flint and Martin County awoke. Unable to ignore the issues, they rose up. Snatching power from those at the top and doing everything they could to make their case to the world and fight for the basic necessity of water. They started with science. Kentuckians Terry Blanton and Joanne Golden Hill are best friends. Their friendship started at a cemetery. I went to visit a family, old family cemetery and I'd had trouble finding it, and I found it, and I was so excited, and I found it and walked in, and in my fourth and fifth great-grandparents, and then I got to noticing these ribbons were on these trees, and then right beside my fifth great-grandmother was this big sign that said, Blasting Area. They were getting ready to blow up the whole cemetery. Well, I didn't know what to do, and I went home, and I studied and I tried to, con I contacted people and uh, found a man, um, Alan Johnson, uh, called, called Christians for the Mountains. And I thought that was a good name. So I waited and called him morning and told him what happened, who I was and where my cemetery was, Virginia. But I lived in Kentucky. You know, it's like, now what am I going to do? And 
this man said, I'll help you. And the next morning, you um, well, that morning, that afternoon, I contacted him that morning. That afternoon, there was this awesome bunch of people started calling me from all over. And we met and they came from West Virginia, Kentucky, everywhere. Met at my cemetery and anyway, it's been saved. Long story short, it's been saved. In the fight for her family cemetery, Joanne met Terry. And I picked you up and went took you. Hey, I picked you up and didn't know you and took you to the EPA in in um Atlanta. Remember that? Early on? Yeah. <laughs> Terry's activism started in her childhood. And um I loved the creek that I grew up in. I watched them strip mine behind my house when I was a kid and then later flooded my uh, homeland and changed the whole landscape of everything. And then uh, later on, they started strip mining again and, and destroying the creek. And, and so I'm fighting coal companies because you're destroying the water because we were all on well water. And then uh, I lived up on this hill and had a new well dug and that right after I like paid this well off, I found out that it's contaminated because a company from Houston, Texas had been a fortune 500 company had been dumping toxic waste into the, onto the ground in the bend of the Cumberland river in this valley that we lived in. And so the more, you know, the just the more, you know, and any way that you can fight for, uh, clean water and hold those accountable for doing it is the right thing to do. With the weight of what had been done to their land and family histories pressing upon them, Terry and Joanne fought together. Both are involved in Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, or KFTC, that describe themselves as a community of people inspired by a vision, building new power and a better future for all of us. Together, they organize for a fair economy a healthy environment, new safe energy, and an honest democracy. Terry and Joanne attended a KFTC workshop to learn how to test water. Oh, uh, let's see the first time. Well, now the first time that we see ever really, I guess, they done some uh, workshop. I think Kentuckians for the Commonwealth and uh, gave us a meter and showed us how to do it. And then, I mean, Terry just started... You give us the meter and we was on, buddy. <sighs> give us the meter and it's like, we just started testing after that. You know, we had something to test with. Uh, you know, we, we kept, we've kept records. I've got journals where we've just, you know, we just stop and say, hey, that looks like it needs tested. That don't look right. We're going to do it. And um, the first place was down at Dayhoyt. And that was an area where she had grew up at. And that was one of the worst places I had ever seen. The meter, when you test it, anything over like a, a total dissolved solids, I think, it can't go over like 500 because it won't sustain life. It would be up in the thousands. Like it would read maybe 200 or 300, and then you look over and it'd be times 10. Now, I mean, that was, it was like a concrete block. I've got pictures of that concrete block that was in some of this. 
it was eat up. It was like in all these shapes, eat up. And I seen then it was like, man, we need to do more of this. Terry and Joanne became the voice of the water. Sometimes they would have specific spots they visited, such as the Daniel Boone National Forest. But if their day's mission did not involve water testing, Terry and Joanne would inevitably be drawn to the call of the water's ripples and waves, or the sight of a nearby stream with a strange orange tint. They can barely pass by the banks of a river without stopping for a test. Arriving at a site, they explore their way to the water's edge, where they take off their testing backpacks and get to work. After dipping a container into the cool, flowing water and collecting a sample, they place a probe into the sample and know within minutes whether poison is coursing through the water's path. We've tested. I can't even remember all the areas we've tested. We, we went to see my great-grandson. My great uh, and uh, as we was going, it was so funny. It's like, we got to pass by Golden Creek. That's an old area my family owned. It's called Golden's Mountain. And um, they strip-mined it. So... <laughs> we just took a little side trip there, <laughs> test the water. You know what I mean? It's untelling where we might start out going, and we have no intention. But we, I keep the backpack, and we have our stuff ready in the car to jump out and test the water. And like I said, I'm going to see my new great-grandson. It's like, wow, let's just stop for a minute and test this water. <laughs> he's here. He's healthy. He'll be there when we get there. <laughs> But like I said, lots of times we go, we, when we start out, we might not start out going to test water, but we might end up testing water. They became what some might call citizen scientists. They collected data, kept records, and spoke out to the world about what they found. Meanwhile, a little ways northwest, Flint residents were doing similar things. In Flint, citizen science started with the mother, Leanne Walters. When the government failed to respond, she got in contact with Mark Edwards, a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Virginia Tech University. Edwards had been involved in water testing before. When he identified the presence of lead in water in Washington, D.C. in 2003, this time, he assembled a team of students to go to Flint and give citizens the resources and skills they needed to test their water. Dr. Mona from our last episode describes the work they did. Citizen science can work. Um, so when Mark Edwards came, it was, he was working hand in hand with the people of Flint, scientifically testing the water throughout the city and transparently reporting that information. That was amazing. Um, when, we, when the EPA finally came in, um, Leanne Walters, this amazing mom, actually taught the EPA how to sample water. Like the, the citizens became better scientists than the scientists. And, and to this day, they can, they can tell you the ins and outs of water treatment and corrosion control. And, but that's, that's consistent through like so many examples, like Aaron Brockovitz, um, Lewis Gibbs, like at Love Canal, like the, the stories continue where, where the, where the moms and dads um, become not only kind of um, advocates for their own children, but really all children in their entire community and become experts in that area. From climate change to COVID-19, we are all aware of the way that facts, evidence, and science itself have been challenged, dismissed, and denied. And we are too aware of the daily consequences that follow. 
Same can be said for the water crises in Michigan and Kentucky. But this episode and these stories bear out the power that impacted people can exercise. By becoming scientists and producers of knowledge, they shift the balance and reassert information as a check on politicians and elites. They urge us to seek truth relentlessly and reclaim science over ideology and against corporate profit to return truth with a capital T and science with a capital S to serve their fundamental roles as drivers of humane public policy. Yeah, you know, I think before all that, um, I really thought that if you shared science and facts and numbers and evidence, um, that, you know, how, how could anybody reject that? Like, you know, this is clear. This is facts, you know? Uh, this is what's happening and, you know, this is the, it's being done the right way. You know, the research is accurate, blah, blah, blah. Um, so then to, to have that disconnect where, oh, you know, they're, they're not respecting that science, um, was a little jarring, especially kind of, you know, being trained and raised and like, as, as a scientist, as somebody who kind of, that's how I think that's how I operate. That's how, you know, medicine is run. Um, you know, that's my background to then, to then be in a space, um, where, you know, excuses or other explanations were made that disrespected that science, um, was absolutely eye opening and, and really kind of disorienting as, especially at first. Um, and I'm so glad you asked that because like, that's why, like, that's one of the reasons that the Flint story is such a nationally relevant story, um, because it is the story of what happens when we close our eyes to science and facts. Um, and, and obviously right now in, in this pandemic, we, it, you know, science denial was a big part of it, but also climate change and vaccines and our, you know, cuts to environmental health regulations, like the list goes on and on of how we have become a, a governance um, that isn't being driven by, by, by science. Next time on Moral Courage Radio. There's a lot of blood memory for Black people around water and water being weaponized. Uh, when you look at using water hoses to control crowds uh, during the civil rights movements and uprisings. This is Poison and Power, the fight for water a Moral Courage Project. We are your hosts, Desiree Boothenthal and Grace Gibson. This episode was written by Claire Sullivan and Joel Pruce, and edited by Jake Neff, with music by Beck Trumbull. Moral Courage Radio is produced by Joel Pruce. Find and follow us across our social media platforms. If you like what you've heard here, tell some friends, leave us a review, And be sure to subscribe to Moral Courage Radio so you can get the next episode as soon as it drops.